We have reached um, a portion of Titus, the epistle to Titus, that deals with false teachers. And so I want to say before we pray, um, as we get into this this morning, it's going to be fairly direct, but I also believe that I'm, I know you and we know each other, and I also believe that I am um, in many ways sort of preaching to the choir, if, so to speak. So um, at any rate, let's, let's pray together. Father, it is, uh, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us what we need this morning, that you would um, speak to us those wonderful words of life, remind us of the good news. Lord, not just, um, not just so that we can know it intellectually, but that we can be reminded of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. You have so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, remind us of that truth that we might worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we're actually going to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 13. So if you want to turn there, um, we will make our way to Titus uh, chapter 1, but it's going to be just a little bit. Um, I promise, though, we will get there eventually. Um, and I think you're going to be able to see the connection when I read this passage in Matthew chapter 13. We're actually going to read verses 24 to 30, um, and then down in verse 36 through verse 43. This is the parable of the weeds, and then the second section is Jesus' explanation of that parable for his disciples. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, says this, And he put another before, a parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I jump down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is... The, seed of, uh, the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, just for clarity's sake, as we read this, although you've probably already figured this out, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is comparing this field with in this parable is not necessarily referring to heaven itself, but rather to the church, to the, to the people of God living under the reign of Christ. 
He's referring to the assembly of the saints on earth. Jesus is clearly teaching that there will be weeds that grow up among God's people that will, that will not be preserved for everlasting life. Because, to kind of drop the parable language, they're not real converts. They're not Christians, even though they're living amongst the church. In fact, he says of them in verse 41, he says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, this parable of the weeds here, it teaches a couple of different lessons, as he says, for those who have ears to hear. But primarily, we can see in Jesus' explanation that God will judge that God will even destroy. He will burn up the weeds at the end of the age. But what I want us to see this morning is verse 25. Take a good look at verse 25. It says, While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So in the ancient world especially, this kind of... um, sabotage was not that uncommon, especially among warring clans or disputing neighbors. But drop the metaphor of farming for just a moment and see what Jesus is truly teaching here. While the church leaders are asleep, enemies of God have snuck in and planted seeds of lies and corrupt teaching among God's people. And the result has been that unbelievers have infiltrated God's church, trying to choke out the growth of the genuine disciples. For this reason, in order to guard against this, the New Testament is filled with warnings for pastors and elders and overseers, and and in some cases even fathers and husbands, to stand firm in the truth and to be on the lookout for heresy. If you remember in our study of the book of Acts a few years ago, Paul spent three years living with the church of Ephesus. He loved the Ephesian church. And in his final exhortation to the Ephesian elders, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31, he used a different graphic illustration to really illustrate the same point. Instead of warning them about weeds, he said this. This is Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This shows us the the seriousness of the task of doctrinal watchfulness. The souls of God's people are at stake. Your souls are at stake here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes of the need for forgiveness and reconciliation in church relationships because, and, and this is what we need to see, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, he says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The schemes and scams, the devices and designs of Satan against the church 
are many. Of course, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about personal sin that was infecting the church. This is a very, very real threat to, to any church. But we also know that Satan has some bigger schemes, bigger picture schemes as well. Throughout history, these schemes and designs for destroying the church have typically come from three different directions. First, there is that personal and unchecked sin. That sin that that so easily destroys a person and then moves on to destroy a family. And then Paul says in in a couple of places, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It spreads throughout the whole church. This is the most common scheme because sin lives in the man, in the heart of every person. But there are also some kind of bigger satanic devices that he uses to destroy a church. Persecution, for example, both from cultural pressures and from governments who are opposed to God's kingdom. So China is actively opposed to the kingdom of God. North Korea, the former Soviet Union, there are many governments and cultures that are actively working to destroy the church. Much of the suffering of New Testament Uh, saints that the writers of the New Testament address, much of that suffering has come to the church as a result of persecution. And so the the writers, Paul and Peter and James, they they write in John, they write of our need to stand firm in the gospel and to show courage in the face of threats and, and even death. James and Peter specifically write their books to encourage the church in the face of persecution. It's obvious to all that this is where we are headed as Western society. We are seeing an increasing opposition to biblical Christianity, not only here in the United States, not only in Canada, but even in Western Europe. The Western society is seeing an increased opposition and persecution. I believe that we should be prepping, preparing ourselves, but I'm not talking about buying cans of soup. I mean that we should be theologically preparing ourselves and catechizing our children to withstand the threat. But I also believe that there's, there's a bigger threat to us. There are weeds growing up in the master's field, and they are threatening to choke out the master's wheat. There are fierce wolves that have grown up among God's flock. See, I believe that the other scheme of Satan to destroy the church is the false teaching that continues to rise up from within the church. Now, I need to make a quick distinction here before I go any further. There's a difference between doctrinal differences and false teaching, right? Doctrinal differences are those things that that someone, frankly, has wrong, like the method of baptism, for example, And yet they still love the Lord, they still love His Word, and they're not necessarily leading people astray. They're brothers in Christ. We may have some differences with them, but they're believers. We don't believe they're false teachers. Having wrong doctrine can lead someone astray, but it doesn't necessarily make someone a false teacher. We want to be careful about that. But today we're talking about those false teachers that are 
that are an even greater threat to God's church than the increasing opposition that we see in the news. In fact, I believe that this is a greater threat now um, than it was in Titus's day, or at least the tactics are more threatening. And by that, I, I just mean in this sense, it's easier for false teachers to get into our families today. And make no mistake, your family is the target. Do you, do you hear that? Do, do you hear me, men? Your family is the target for false teachers. We can see that from the passage here in Titus 1. We can see it from Timothy's writing. Our families are the target. Your wives and your children are a target for false teachers. Now, here's why I'm, I'm saying that I think it's easier, in, in this sense at least, in, Titus, in, in our day than in Titus's day in biblical times for false teachers to get to our families. I think there's two factors. The first is mass media, so radio, TV, internet, books. And the second is that there are churches of every flavor under the sun in every corner in America. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul warned this. He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And it's easy to do that when there's a church just up the street who will tell you what you want to hear. And, and maybe even they have some cool music. And here's why I believe that the infiltration of false teachers is so much worse than persecution. It's because historically speaking, whether you're looking through the book of Acts or throughout church history, persecution tends to actually strengthen Christ's church, especially and precisely because it works as a purifier for the church and sends the church on mission as the people move to safety. But doctrinal corruption, false teaching, it leaves the people of God weak, scattered, confused, and in far too many instances, even in despair. I'm going to give you an example. And it's easy to pick on prosperity preachers or those on TV. I'm going to hit a little bit closer to home. There is a false doctrine called the second work of grace, and it has bewitched many around Logan County. See, the Bible clearly teaches that at the very moment you are declared righteous by God, at the moment you are justified, converted, in that very moment you are sanctified immediately, you are set apart as belonging to Christ and clothed in His righteousness. That's not something that happens later, and this is all the work of the Lord. Yet in the holiness movement, think the Church of God denomination, among others, the second work of grace is considered to be another cleansing of the tendency to commit sin. This is an experience they call entire sanctification. And they teach that this leads to Christian perfection in this life. Here's how this is accomplished according to a local church website. These are quotes from a local church website. Quote, Sanctification, or the baptism of the Holy Ghost, purges this carnality, indwelling sin. 
In other words, according to this false teaching, those who have received the Holy Spirit no longer sin. You're starting to see a problem with this teaching. It gets worse. Under the heading, conditions for receiving the Holy Spirit. Think about that. On a local church website, there is a section that says, conditions for receiving the Holy Spirit. This is one of the conditions. A complete, unconditional surrender of self to God without any reservations, followed by earnest desire and fervent prayer for the infilling of the Holy Spirit must be made. Beloved, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 makes this promise. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is how the Apostle Paul can say, as a, as a way to assure us, as a way to assure Christians throughout Romans chapter 7, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And his answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is what grace is. There are no conditions for a Christian to receive the Holy Spirit. Rather, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is good news. They're preaching a message of works, but we're preaching his free grace. This is freeing. This is encouraging us to, to come to the table, to come to the table as blood-bought saints declaring the good news until Jesus Christ returns. My point in bringing this up is not to just sling some mud. I hope you know me better than that. Rather, it is to warn and to protect you. If you are a Christian, then you are Christ's. And he bids you to come and dine at his table because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are his. Turn over to Titus chapter 1 now. I want to read verses 9 through 16. Titus 1.9, he must, speaking of the elders, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families 
by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. If we ever have to choose between persecution and false teaching, the clear teaching of the Scriptures is that we should fear the infiltration of heresy far more than any other threat to the church. This is why Paul stresses the need for elders in Christ's church to, as verse 9 says, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And there are three uh, characteristics that we can see here from today's passage that mark a false teacher that mark one who contradicts the sound doctrine of the Bible. They are sinful words, selfish motives, and shameful actions. And for each of these characteristics, I think we need to ask two questions. About what should we be concerned, and about whom are we concerned with protecting? So let's begin with the, the teaching itself, the sinful words. Sinful words. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Look at the adjectives that describe these, these false teachers. The first one is insubordinate. That means that they don't respect the authority of God's church, God's, uh, God's ordained leaders in the church, the elders. And this makes sense because the authority of the elders is a word-based authority. In other words, pastors and elders, have uh, their authority is restricted to spiritual and faith matters, and it's, it's governed by the Scripture, always. And these insubordinate teachers don't respect God's Word. Why would they respect elders? And so they say things like, well, that's just your interpretation. And then they proceed to tell you what the Bible means to them. But the, the Bible, Paul here, calls that person an empty talker. It doesn't matter what the Bible means to you. What does the Bible mean? Empty talkers are those whose teaching produces no discernible heart change in the life and godliness of their hearers, at least beyond maybe clothing style or exterior behavior modification. And in the end, they're deceivers. They're hiding their true motives, which we're going to see in just a moment. But first, I want to ask those two important questions. So the first question was this. About what should we be concerned? We should be concerned with damaged doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching, what the Bible teaches. I can't stress enough the importance of holding to sound doctrine in a church. I've hammered on kind of one specific denomination or church this morning. But we need to remember that not holding to sound doctrine has even gotten this church into some trouble in years past. If you've been here for more than 20 years, you might remember some of that. 
We also need to remember that not holding to sound doctrine on issues like women in ministry or biblical marriage has led many a church down the path of liberalism. Those are just a couple of examples. We could look at churches that have rejected the historicity of Adam, churches that have rejected the truth and actual resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can see that those churches eventually end up rejecting all of Scripture. We pray that God would remove the lampstand. We must take the Bible seriously. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, as opposed to topics, or randomly picking out and choosing passages. God gave us his word as books. Shouldn't we receive it the way that he gave it to us? But Paul gives us a hint here as to the damaged doctrine that he was speaking against. He mentions the circumcision party in verse 10. And then in verse 14, he says this. Look at verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. He's speaking specifically against the teaching of a group of uh, teachers, sometimes known as the Judaizers. This is really the first heresy of the New Testament era that the apostles had to fight. The Judaizers were teaching the lie that Christians had to submit to the law of Moses in order to be saved. In fact, Acts 15 verse 1 says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then the rest of Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem council where the apostles and the elders gathered together to determine that this was, in fact, a false teaching. And yet that teaching persisted. The book of Galatians, in particular, is written against this heresy. In fact, in Galatians, when Paul says that he opposed Peter to his face, it was because Peter had fallen into this to a certain extent. Paul rebuked him persisted. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes to the church, um, churches in Galatia. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say that if you, have accept, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. To tell Christians that in order to be saved, you must do this. You must, you must have an earnest desire and a fervent prayer for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, if you add anything to the gospel, it's false gospel. It's a different doctrine. It's a, it's a different gospel. It's damaged doctrine. The second heresy, by the way, that the apostles had to battle in the New Testament was the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosis begins with a silent G. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And the Gnostics were teaching that salvation is primarily a matter of using, acquiring and using secret knowledge. The books of 1 John, 2 Peter, and Jude all address Gnosticism. And today, 
Christian Gnosticism or Gnosticism within Christianity is actually making a huge comeback. We're seeing a strange mixture, really, of both of these kind of false teachings growing up like weeds throughout churches. And this is a damaged doctrine that leads to damaged families. And that's really the second question here, about whom are we concerned with protecting? It is with protecting our families. Here's the thing. False teaching is attractive and destructive. It sounds like it could be right. We want it to be right. In some cases, it's, easy, it's even easier to believe. It plays right into our emotions. Maybe it gives us the structure that we want. Or maybe we think it looks like freedom. But remember what Paul said. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. You have to work at this. I know that this stuff is sometimes hard to understand. But if you want to give up on this, if you want to give up on sound doctrine, I would encourage you or challenge you to go read what happens in John chapter 6. Pay special, I'm not going to read it today, but pay special attention to chapter 6, verse 60 and verse 66. John 6, 60 and 66. Doctrine has consequences. What we believe and teach has consequences. It affects our thinking. It affects our beliefs. It affects our choices. It affects our relationships. And yet putting layers of law on top of the gospel as the Judaizers are doing, it leads to families torn apart. Some of you have experienced that. Again, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. As I started to say earlier, their sinful words are driven by selfish motives. Selfish motives. See, words are not uh, Paul's only concern. Look, look at verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Shameful gain. Do you see a similar phrase up in verse 7? In fact, just look up there. Titus 1, 7, speaking of the elder qualifications, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. The old way of saying that is filthy lucre. This is where we have to be careful. I read, and this was just in God's providence, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, where Paul makes a case that it is not wrong to pay your pastors. In fact, the Bible very clearly teaches that those who labor in the word ought to be paid, and even paid well. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. That's just one example. And Paul makes this very clear on multiple occasions throughout the New Testament that churches are responsible to pay their elders, their pastors, a living wage. Those who make their living preaching the gospel have a right to be paid for their work. But the false teacher 
is the one who teaches wrong things in order to gain money or status from the church. These are the prosperity preachers of the 80s and 90s who've now kind of modified their teaching just a little bit so that instead of talking so much about wealth, now they're talking about blessing and happiness. This really also includes those who work really hard not only to um, gain financially from their listeners, but also those who work really hard in order to build a name for themselves. This is especially true online right now. Too many pastors are willing to compromise sound doctrine for a platform. Too many pastors are eager to be internet famous. They want to work, out lucrative, work on the lucrative conference circuit, which can pay really well, by the way. They want to be well known on Twitter. I think too many pastors use their job title to promote their books. And so we need to beware of selfish motives. We need to go back to these questions again. About what should we be concerned? We should be guarding against ministries that are focused on gain and fame. Now, I want to be very clear, right? There are faithful pastors with whom we maybe even have serious doctrinal disagreements, but they're brothers whose motives are pure. But far too many preachers and teachers are motivated by gain and fame, and when corrected, they ignore you or unfriend you. This is what we see when we ask this second question, about whom are we concerned with protecting? We are protecting those who have lost their focus. Look at verses 12 and 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Paul is quoting there in verse 12, uh, a 6th century B.C. philosopher named Epimenides. And he's saying that some of these false teachers or people who believe this false teaching have, have fallen back into the Cretan stereotype and they need to be rebuked. Here's where the interpretive problem comes in here. Is he talking about false teaching pastors or church members who are spreading false teachings? I think it could be either. But it seems pretty clear as we get to the end of verse 13 that these are believers who are being carried about by every wind and wave of doctrine, as Ephesians 4 says. See, false teaching infiltrates churches through church members too. They read a book or they see something online that tickles, tickles their ears and they start promoting it in the church, promoting things that are anti-gospel. And Paul tells Titus to rebuke them sharply because look at the danger that they are in at the, at the very end of verses 14 and 15. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Over time, followers of these kinds of teachers have turned away from the truth. We're seeing this in in all kinds of, of Christian denominations that have denied the authority of Scripture, or they have added to the gospel. We see this in, in churches that claim to be the one true church because they have, they have that secret knowledge and only they are the ones that get it right. But why is verse 15 here 
true. Why is verse 15 true? John Calvin said of this, he said, they corrupt everything. When they handle God's good creatures, they infect them with their pollution. For unbelief is like a deadly plague. Thus, when a man is defiled, everything he touches, he soils along with himself. Am I being too harsh? Is Calvin there being too harsh? Is is the Apostle Paul being too harsh? Does it matter if somebody teaches or believes wrong things? If that's just like your opinion, man. Things that upset whole families and lead people to turn away from the truth. Does it matter? Does it matter if a few local churches teach a a second work of grace or entire sanctification or the baptism of the Holy Ghost? It matters. It matters because listen to Jesus' promise from John chapter 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It matters that a whole lot of people around Logan County don't know that that's true are being led astray, and are being given a false hope. People that you probably know and love and work with that don't understand that Christ has promised them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It matters. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. It matters because 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I, I'm committed by the grace of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to teach you the truth, that you might have confidence and that you might have assurance, that you might rest in Him, that you can know the truth. And then finally, we need to watch out for their selfish actions. That last verse is really the nail in the coffin. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. There are many teachers who claim to be Christian, and yet by their works, they are clearly their own gods. This is utter hypocrisy. Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, he put it this way. He said, trusting in their own works, by their own wisdom, their own righteousness, they by their lives deny the God they profess to know. By their man-centered, humanistic message that focuses on what they can do, they make an idol of themselves. In the process, they deny the truth of Scripture. They question the sinfulness and inability of man to save himself. They cheapen the cross, slight the Holy Spirit, and construct their own false system of salvation. And so about what should we be concerned? We should be watching for deeds that deny God. We should be watching for those who lift themselves up and draw all of the attention to themselves, who stand in the front row of the pews and draw all the attention to themselves. And about whom are we concerned with protecting? 
We are concerned with God's glory. These false teachers who are creeping in and planting weeds among God's harvest are detestable to God. They are disobedient to God and they are unfit for any good work of God. But we, but we, look over at chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Look at those verses. Titus 2, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He has called us his own, purified for his own possession, a people. We're zealous for good works. I'm not saying these things today in order to bash my theological enemies. I'm not trying to stir up controversy. In fact, I I hate controversy and conflict. I'm saying these things to remind you that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God, and to remind you of the truth of what he has done in sending his son to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. I'm saying these things to remind you to keep your eyes solely on Christ. To look for him in the word. And to remember that word, that verse that has become the theme around here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Pray with me. Father, it would be easy to take this today and then to believe that we are the one true church, that we've got it right. It would be easy to be prideful. Oh Lord, please keep us from that. Remind us that our... um, Authority is in the word that you have given us. Father, remind us as we leave here today that you have promised not to leave us as orphans. That you have redeemed for yourself a people for your own possession. That you have so loved us that you sent your son. Remind us today that if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Remind us today that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remind us today, Lord, that Christ went to the cross to take away all of our sin and shame. Remind us, Lord, that Christ went to the cross in order to wrap us with his righteousness. Those who would call upon him are his to the glory of God. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.